And the way that I sort of see it is kind of quality and risk are two sides of the same coin in that, you know, we want to build something quality. If something has high quality, it's more valuable to our end users, our customers, our stakeholders. But then risk is the other side, and that's what's always potentially degrading um, our quality. From Toro Cloud, this is the Coding Over Cocktails podcast, a free pour of thoughts, ideas, and advice from IT experts, innovators, and thought leaders, exploring the world of digital transformation, APIs, microservices, cloud adoption, and more. Welcome to episode 62 of the Coding Over Cocktails podcast. My name is Kevin Montalbo. Joining us today from Sydney, Australia is TorCloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Hi, David. Good morning. Hi there, Kevin. All right. Our guest for today is a tester, toolsmith, and the Ministry of Testing Chief Operation Officer slash Ops Boss with over 10 years experience providing testing expertise on award-winning projects across a wide range of technology sectors. He is an advocate for modern risk-based testing practices and trains teams in automation in testing, behavior-driven development, and exploratory testing techniques. He co-founded the Ministry of Testing Essentials, a community raising awareness of careers in testing and improving testing education. He's also the author of Testing Web APIs, which we'll be having a giveaway of soon, courtesy of Manning Publications. Joining us today for a round of cocktails is Mark Winteringham. Hi, Mark. Great to have you on the show. Hi, Kevin. Hi, David. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us. All right. Thank you. Now, before we dive into your book, can we first talk about what you do at the Ministry of Testing as an ops boss and more interestingly, as a dojo boss before? What does, what do those titles mean? Yes. Yeah. We, yeah. I get asked that question a lot because as, as fun as the job titles are, they're not super descriptive if you don't really know about Ministry of Testing. So, uh, I joined Ministry of Testing about sort of three years ago. I've kind of been involved with Ministry of Testing for years and years and years. Basically, Ministry of Testing, the way I like to think of it is like a professional community of practice for testers. Um, so we, till sort of the pandemic hit, we ran lots of conferences around the world. Um, but we also had kind of an online presence. We had to pivot, obviously, when everything happened. Uh, so we do quite a lot of like online conferences, online training, um, just generally uh, building ways to get people in the community, the testing community, talking to one another and sort of sharing. And that might be sort of casual conversations or actually sort of more formalized training. So when I joined, I'd been doing a lot of work for Ministry of Testing sort of uh, as a sort of individual. Um, and when I, I sort of kind of came on board, they wanted someone to sort of push forward the online training aspect of it all. So that was the dojo boss. So we kind of, the dojo was like our online learning space. We had sort of the online learning space and then we had like the in-person events. And then as everything changed, my job suddenly grew from about 30% of the business to 100% of the business. Uh, so yeah, rose to the challenge. Um, and then sort of about six to eight months, uh, I was sort of, I say promoted, but we're pretty flat. So I, my role changed and I became the ops boss. So now my focus is uh, just the day-to-day running of the organization, um, trying to sort of, uh, well, support the team in what they're doing, trying to encourage more of a sort of experimentation mindsets, trying to get us a bit more lean and just improving that sort of feedback loop between us, Mop, the organization and our community and just kind of react more to what they need, what they want and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's a bit of a baptism of fire as it's a bit of a step away from testing, but um, so far I'm really enjoying it. It's really good. Has your experience at Ministry of Testing led towards this book testing of web APIs or is that something that you've had in mind for some time? 
It's something I've had in mind for quite a while. Um, it's almost, it is kind of connected with this new role, but it's almost like a, a culmination of sort of my experiences over the last 10 years as a tester. But I'd been playing around with it for ages, like this idea of doing this book. But I kept sort of thinking, I just don't feel like I could do it. Like understanding that it's a big undertaking and not necessarily wanting to take it on board. But then I ended up watching, bizarrely of all things, I watched a gaming stream on YouTube and the guy who was doing gaming was also an author. And he just said, page a day. That was the advice he was giving someone else. And so I started a page a day. And after a month, I had a chapter and a half and I thought, hey, I actually quite like this I like it as a way to sort of present my thoughts and stuff. And it's sort of kind of, you could either say progressed or snowballed, <laughs> depending on your attitude, depending on the day. Small steps. Good strategy. Um, in your first chapter, you cover the reason why there's a need for testing web APIs. Uh, and uh, you mentioned a test strategy model to get IT teams and stakeholders onto the same page. So can you tell us more about the model? Yeah, sure. So it was kind of introduced to me by the, the original author, James Lindsay, uh, years ago. Actually, it was my first ever sort of public speaking engagement thing. Uh, we have this idea of uh, exploratory workshops um, in the testing community where we get together and have like proper sit down discussions about sort of progressing testing. Um, and it's, it's quite formalized, but it's uh, very collaborative and quite exciting and stuff. So the, my first time was actually meeting James. He told me about this model and how he sort of sees testing. So the idea is, is it's basically a Venn diagram. And the, the two parts of the Venn diagram are your imagination and your implementation. So the imagination is what you want to build. Um, and some of that is explicit knowledge. So that might be things that you've written down, things that you've said, things that you've emailed. Uh, but it's also kind of the stuff that's sort of implied the tacit stuff. So when we say like, we want a search feature built behind those scenes, we're like, well, we want the search feature built because we don't want the business to go. We want users to stay, that sort of idea. So it's a tester's responsibility to sort of dig into the why, really understand like the solutions, the designs and stuff. And then the implementation side, it's the product itself. So the product, again, we know some of how we expect the product to work because this is where sort of things like classic, things like test cases and test scripts come into it. Um, and again, that sort of explicit information, but then we can do activities like exploratory testing, um, performance testing, um, anything that sort of kind of pushes the boundary to have us actually really understand how the application works, not just kind of confirm its correctness. And the idea is the more we know about those two things, the more they can overlap. And if there's any sort of clash, those are where our issues are. Those are where our bugs are. Yeah, I think it's interesting you talk about bringing stakeholders back into the process during the, t the testing phase because in API-first design, obviously we talk about collaborating with stakeholders in terms of the design phase of building APIs. But I guess it, I, some people may be surprised but that once the design phase and implementation phase is done, with an API you have a contract. And so... This concept of bringing stakeholders back in and understanding the expectations of the API and stuff like that, why, why not just test the contract? Why not just test the endpoints? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's something I talk about in the book or sort of kind of hint at, but it's a whole book in its own right, is you know, what what drives testing skill? What What is it that's the, the, the core of a tester's experience? And it's that critical and lateral thinking. It's the questioning techniques. So we question products. So why can't we question ideas as well? Why can't we do the same thing and actually apply that knowledge and almost uh, build a mental model in our mind 
of what's being presented and sort of explore those eventualities and actually have conversations around that sort of stuff. Because actually, I think a lot of people who are in the testing space, when they move into that, they actually go, oh, this feels familiar. It might be a bit scary at first, but actually it feels familiar because you're kind of stretching the same sort of mental muscles. You dedicate a chapter of your book to quality and risk. Uh, run us through uh, how quality and risk applies to our testing strategies. Sure. So um, I was very much influenced by my uh, colleague, Dan Ashby, on sort of quality mindset. He's done a lot of work on that. And I recommend everyone check out his stuff. Um, and he helped me. He was like the co-founder of the essential stuff that we did. Um, and the way that I sort of see it is kind of quality and risk are two sides of the same coin in that, you know, we want to build something quality. If something has high quality, it's more valuable to our end users, our customers, our stakeholders. But then risk is the other side, and that's what's always potentially degrading um, our quality. So traditionally, like when we talk about testing, it tends to sort of get stuck in this sort of uh, older thinking of, it's just confirming requirements. It's confirming expectations. So it's taking what has been explicitly stated, whether that's a big requirements document or a user story, turning that into some sort of test cases, test scripts, and just running those. And, you know, it has some success. I don't think it would have carried on as long as it had if it didn't have some success. But, you know, as we are being asked to uh, deliver faster and you know, the competition gets fiercer, um, between businesses and stuff like that, you know, we need to make sure that the actual testing that we're doing is targeted. So that's where the quality and risk aspects come in within strategy is my focus is thinking about what quality matters and getting everyone else to think about what quality matters to our end users. Like what, what do they, what do they care about? How do they define quality to themselves? And then use that as the sort of launching point for where I'm going to focus my testing because I can't test everything. So I want to be effective and I want to be sort of almost laser focused on the things that matter the most. So, yeah, so that's kind of what quality and risk are for me. They're, they are sort of the North Star of um, of the testing that I do and the, the direction I take my strategy and my plans. So if you want to address risk to improve quality, how do you go about mapping potential risks for your API? Um, so I think it depends on uh, sort of what activities you're doing. So one good example is in the sort of exploratory testing phase that's uh, the exploratory testing space is uh, the use of charters so charters for me are sort of kind of ways of yeah capturing risk but uh, writing it in a way that's sort of almost like a an invitation to explore it's sort of a detail of we're concerned about this type of risk so we'll do some exploratory testing around that um but that only kind of focuses on sort of uh, one type of testing Myself and my colleague, Richard Bradshaw, who's uh, the boss boss of ministry of testing, we run a course called Automation in Testing. And we talk a lot about how actually we use risks to help us identify what automation we're going to do. Um, so some of it actually might be codified into uh, automated checks. So I might write, write some API automation. I might write some unit automation, um, contract testing. You know, we talked about that, about the risks of contracts actually drifting as things get more complicated, uh, those sort of things. So for me, like how I track risk is in the testing activities I do and the plans that I set around that. Um, I think it would be nice if we could see something where like, so historically we have risk registers, um, but they tend to be sort of sit separate to strategies. It'd be lovely to see something in the future where we can actually see quite clearly you know, what risks we're concerned about and what things are tied to. Um, but for me personally, it's always kind of connected, like it's justifying what I'm doing. 
So if I can say I'm doing this because I'm concerned about this risk, does it really matter where it's captured? It, it's sort of almost like a symbiotic relationship between like you need to ask me about the testing and then I will rely on the other information and stuff to st- tell the story. I'm guessing that that that, that, that collaboration with stakeholders when, it, when establishing the kind of risks, is that's where it becomes also really valuable because I imagine a developer is thinking about technical risks and um, you know network exposure and you know denial of service attacks or those type of scenarios but maybe a, a stakeholder which is more of a business stakeholder or uh, you know thinking about the use cases of the API may say well actually you know we might have some potential users that might try and do this and this and this and think it and, may, and so I guess the collaboration in that respect is going to help identify a much broader range of risks yeah I was really um uh, I think my eyes opened a lot when I went to DevRelCon in London, so I think back in 2018, and how they had a whole track around sort of community, but then they had a whole track on just how you design your APIs. So just because they functionally work doesn't necessarily mean that that's where you stop. So being clear, into, if you have APIs that have to be consumed by third parties, making sure that your error codes are clear, making sure that when you're actually providing feedback from your APIs, that it's uh, intelligible, it's parsable. Because if not, it becomes quite difficult to, um, well, it's difficult to understand. People move on, they don't want to use your APIs because, um, you know, they're going to go and find something that's that has uh, less resistance let's say, in terms of integrating with it and stuff. And I think that's that's a good example there of that matters to the business. It's not necessarily a technical risk. It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's more more comes from that sort of business motivation. One of the things I thought was really interesting in the book was you had this concept that uh, testing should apply across the entire software development lifecycle. You actually mentioned even before a line of code is written. How does testing come in even before a line of code is written? Well, that's that questioning concept and, and the, you know, sitting down with your team as you're designing your contracts, you're working out what sort of solutions you're going to come up with. And it's even more than that. It's actually questioning the problem as well. So understanding what the, the problem is, trying to sort of make sure everyone's on the same page, that there's no misconceptions as well. So that's, that's when I think about that, that's that, that idea. Um, I think it's very much inspired by um, uh, Janet Gregory and Lisa Crispin's whole team approach. So they talk quite a lot about that and they've done a lot of work in that sort of space about yeah the idea of joining in as early as possible at that point where we're discussing the ideas because actually there's there's a lot of it's it's a lot more fluid. Um, it's because uh, it's sort of early doors. We haven't invested much time in things. We can avoid certain biases like sunk cost fallacy and stuff like that as well. Sometimes I find personally as a tester, if I'm sort of saying, I think that this might be a problem down the line at the start, it's more likely to be resolved than if we finish the work and we're about to release it. And it's like, oh, you know, we don't want to stop the release to do this thing. So, so yeah, it's, it's just about questioning ideas and uh, questioning problems and getting everyone on the same page, really. Um, that's kind of it. Let's talk about automated testing. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of automated testing. I know, I know it's not the be-all and end-all, but I find it's a, you know, a scalable process. Um, you cover techniques such as functional API automation, contract testing, automated acceptance test-driven design. Run us through uh, all these concepts, what you can do with automated testing, what you should be testing and what the techniques are. 
So again, I think what's really interesting about this is we can bring it back to risk. So when I when I think about those as three different entities, I think about three different types of risk. So for example, on the functional side, um, the risks can be the correctness. You know, that's where the classic sort of test scripts. These are expectations we would like to confirm that they are still true. So using those in maybe in a regression capacity. So the idea being is, is that I have all these automated checks that are running. Um, if one of those fails, it's, it's not necessarily telling me if the quality is up or down. It's just telling me something has changed in the system. And then I have to react to that change. Uh, I have to go and maybe go and explore it and find out what's actually happened and determine if that change is good or bad to our quality. And that's uh, really inspired by uh, a webinar by Michael Bolton, who talks a lot about sort of regression testing and thinking about it as change detectors rather than this sort of kind of safety net sort of idea, which you're never going to have a safety net that covers everything in that sort of space. So on the functional space, that is, it's that sort of thing of thinking about ways in which the system works, uh, risks that matter to us, core parts of the system, that sort of thing. Um, that we want to make sure that we're getting regular feedback. Um, so as we make changes to the system, if those changes have a side effect, we can deal with that. And also as, as a side note, the way I measure that success is developer confidence. So if a developer feels confident to make changes, I think that that's a sign of successful uh, automation. And then on the contract side, uh, so we talked a bit about that already, about the idea of contracts drifting between APIs. So we we work in a very remote world at the moment, uh, but if you've got uh, one team in one time zone and another team in another time zone, and it's hard for them to have discussions with each other, you know, if one changes their API and doesn't inform the other, you know, everything's fine and green on their side until everything deploys and it all blows up. So I see uh, contract testing as uh, kind of like a an automated solution to a human problem. So it's that same idea of a trigger. So we use contract testing to make sure that uh, our systems are honoring the contract that we've agreed with someone else. If it changes, that leads to a discussion and we, we either make the changes or we roll them back, that sort of thing. And then with the automated acceptance um, testing stuff, um, that's really interesting because it's kind of uh, a bit fuzzy in the testing community. I think it's clearer in like with developers, but for testers, Sometimes they mix up automated acceptance testing with just running good old test scripts. But for me, automated acceptance testing is the, the best analogy I always come up with is it's like having a bowling alley and having the, the, the bumpers on. So it gives you the framework to, to deliver, um, what it is that you're being asked to deliver. Um, but it doesn't completely pigeonhole you. So as a developer, you have that freedom still to build the system in the way that you want to build it, but still hit those business expectations. So the, the, the barriers are there to prevent you from bowling, uh, bowling a gutter ball. Um, nice analogy, I like to, it. <laughs> yeah, it's still up to you whether your design is a strike or a one pin or a split. So <laughs> it's that sort of thing. Um, but I, I see it distinct to sort of the regression testing because there I care about the risks of the implementation, whereas in the automated acceptance testing space, it's much more about risk of delivery, risk of not understanding what it is that you're being asked to deliver, using those tools to set the boundaries so you know that you're not overstepping the mark. I think it's really useful. So it, I thought it was important in the book to talk about those as three separate things because they kind of get lumped under automation. But as we see, like, you know, performance testing, you could argue it's automation as well. You have to build an automated script to do the performance testing for you as well. So the banner of automation is actually uh, quite wide ranging and there's lots of different risks and different solutions to those risks. 
that we can think of. Is there a limit to automation and how much automation we should be doing? Um, yes, but I think it depends on the context of your situation. So if I go very crudely, I used to work for a digital agency and we used to have projects which were half an hour long. I'd get half an hour of testing. So automation is just mad because by the time I've installed like a JDK and got my IDE up, I'm halfway through my testing time. So I kind of just want to hit the ground running. Whereas if I'm on a longer form project that's uh, maybe quite complex, then that's where I want to think about um, investing automation. I think, uh, again, that measure if about confidence. If people don't have confidence in automation, then it's not necessarily working for us and it requires some sort of reevaluation. But then also there is the factor of how much time am I actually doing other stuff? If I'm spending all of my time fixing automation, creating new automation, then there are going to be gaps in the strategy. It's just simply going to be the case. So I think you have to spend a lot of time understanding what your context is, um, what the skills are of your team, um, what your project deadlines are, what resources you have available to you. And all of that will determine how much automation, how much testing you can do just in general as well. So the classic consultancy answer of it depends. It's <laughs> <laughs> always a good out. Um, yep. <laughs> I'm not sure if you touch on it in your book, but tell us about the what your thoughts are on the evolution of testing frameworks for web APIs. What's the current state of those? Are, are there any particular frameworks you recommend people to take a look at? Is there anything interesting happening in the space? I'm going to suggest something and then completely contradict myself. Um, when we do our automation and testing training, we always sort of say, again, let context be your guide. So I want to pick the right tools that work for my team. So if everyone's writing everything in Python, then I don't necessarily need to want to write all of my frameworks and stuff uh, in Java. So I, I let my context be my guide. Um, I try to be someone who's sort of kind of a finger in many pies. Um, and just be aware of how each of these tools work and stuff. And I, I propose in the book as well, some design patterns around how you kind of, if you're building your API testing framework in code, um, this is a way of arranging it in a nice, clean, dry way. It doesn't really matter what language you use for it or what libraries you use. It's the same sort of pattern. That said, like I kind of came into API training just as Postman appeared. So I've always had a fondness for Postman. I know some of the people who work for them. You know, I've seen the things that they're doing with their tooling and stuff and how it's grown as well. And I think what I, I like about Postman is it sets the, the learning curve, the barrier for people who have not done API testing before quite low. Um, same with Swagger as well. Like we think of Swagger as a documentation tool, but a lot of people I know who get into API testing. The first thing they do is they use Swagger documentation and just create requests and stuff. But yeah, beyond that, not really. Like I just, I, I prefer to use code rather than codeless, but that is because I'm comfortable with code and my, my background and my experience makes it easier. But I know for some people, they've got a lot out of using sort of more of the codeless tools out there as well. It's certainly, it's certainly an exciting time for that space. So at Ministry of Testing, we work with a lot of these tool vendors as well, the sponsorship and, you know, working with the community to get feedback and stuff. And yeah, that the amount of uh, not just API testing tools, but um, just all sorts of frameworks out there and stuff. It's just exploded. Um, it's mad. It's, it's mad. That's, it's that's why I asked the question, because it is exploding. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> there, there's so many choices. Uh, 
But I think that that answer where work with tool sets that you're comfortable with, I mean, we've had that answer uh, on, on many subject matters, uh, dis- various disciplines. So I think it, it's the answer depends on, on again. Yeah. Um, on your website, there's a big banner. How's the book going, Mark? <laughs> the flashes. <laughs> this is a question you're getting asked a lot. <laughs> uh, it was at one point. I was like, this is a good way to put it to bed. Uh, now it just serves as a reminder every time I go on my site to get it over the line. It's almost there, actually. So um, we just went through the second review process and I got lots of feedback, which was really useful. I've actually finished the first draft of the book. So all the chapters, the initial drafts are written. Um, yeah, I got this feedback for the first half of the book. That's all. And I'm just waiting for some edits to come through. And we're going to do third review. And then after that, one last round of editing and going going through the uh, feedback and pushing through the imposter syndrome. Um, and then I think uh, I think we're close to, to publishing. So and uh, we're hoping for sort of late spring, summertime. So I'm hoping to get it over the line. Fantastic. There are some excerpts available on the book on under the uh, manning.com uh, website and uh, the book testing web APIs. Mark, how can our listeners follow the stat, the, yeah, the, your progress on the book and your thoughts on social media and the like? Uh, yes, yeah, so the best place is to sort of uh, get in touch um, uh, on Twitter. So I'm 2BitTester on Twitter, the number two. Um, and I'm also on LinkedIn as well. Um, it's been interesting, actually. I learned, actually, that LinkedIn is a, is, a, is actually a valuable space for something like this. Um, but, yeah, Twitter, LinkedIn. Why, why does that um, surprise you? It's just because most of the time I've used social media in more of a casual way, whereas... Um, uh, LinkedIn, I think it's a little bit more formal, but I think in this context, that was really useful. And it just, I'm terrible at social media. So it was just, it was an eye opener. <laughs> much to my wife's irritation as she works in that space. <laughs> and then, yeah, uh, through Ministry of Testing Slack, um, I'm always on there. I'm tied to it. If you kind of want to just get involved in the testing community in general, uh, check out ministryoftesting.com. Should we expect uh, Ministry of Testing to get back to the uh, face-to-face Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we're taking uh, small steps. Um, We have like over 100 meetups around the world. So we're working with them to get them started again. Uh, We've got some small events in the UK. And then we've got Test Bash UK, which is our sort of flagship conference. Uh, It's going to be in Manchester, UK in um, September. It's it's exciting. We're we're all looking forward to seeing each other. It's going to feel weird. (laughs) It's going to feel very weird. Yeah. Um, We have an events boss who I've never met in person. <laughs> um, so it's going to be very odd, but um, yeah, we're we're really excited about looking forward to it and stuff. There's so many sort of familiar faces and new faces that we haven't seen for a while. But Mark Winteringham, thank you very much for joining us on Cutting Out Cocktails. It's been a pleasure. Hey, listeners, thank you for joining us in this round of cocktails. Please like and subscribe to check out other episodes of this podcast series. We're also available on your favorite podcast platforms. Or you can simply listen in at torocloud.com where you'll find full episode transcripts and show notes. On behalf of the team here at ToroCloud, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers! Cheers!